Section 5. The Deep Sea Diver. Part 1. Of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marsitich, Alexandria, Virginia, 2010. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. The Deep Sea Diver. Part 1. Some First Impressions of Men Who Go Down Under the Sea. In Old South Street, far down on the New York riverfront, is a gloomy brick building with black fire escapes zigzagging across its face, and a life-size diver painted over its door, in a red helmet and yellow goggle eyes, to the awe and admiration of the young, to the awe and admiration of anybody who comes through this wicked-looking street by night, and smells the sea, and stares along miles of ships' noses that reach right over the car tracks, and finally stops at the black-lettered announcement that wrecks are looked after here day or night, and mysteries of the deep, penetrated by gentlemen of the diving profession in just such gigantic suits as this painted one. None of this had I noticed, late one night, being occupied with the silent, hungry ships, and the fire-cars trailing over the dim bridge, until a brisk banjo-strumming caught my ear, and I paused at the house of wrecks, whence the sounds came. Somebody back in those moldering shadows was playing the Turkish patrol, and playing it remarkably well. I followed the light down a narrow passage, and presently came upon the modern wrecker, in the person of Benjamin F. Bean, a large man smoking contentedly at a table, whereon rested a telephone and phonograph. The phonograph was playing the Turkish patrol, and a single incandescent lamp, swinging overhead, illumined the scene. There were coils of rope about, and photographs of vessels in distress, and a bunk with tumbled sheets at one side, where Mr. Bean slept, often with his clothes on, while awaiting the ring of sundry danger bells. Divers fully expect to be objects of curiosity, for never do they work except before wondering audiences, so this one found my visit natural enough, was glad, I think, to talk a little and let the phonograph rest. It must be rather lonely, after all, watching for wrecks hour after hour, night after night, listening always for footsteps, the officer's tramp or the thug's stealthy tread, listening always to the hoot of passing vessels, listening always for bad news. He explained to me what happens when the bad news comes, say, a collision up the Hudson, a ferry boat on fire down the bay, a line of barges sunk in the sound, any one of a dozen ordinary disasters. In olden times, such tidings must have traveled from mouth to mouth, and the wreckers of those days flashed their calls and warnings with beacon fires. Now electricity does all this much better with the click of a key, and presently somebody, somewhere, has the office at the end of a wire telling what the trouble is, and forthwith 
the man in charge puts machinery in motion that will change this trouble into cash Brrr, calls the telephone up spring messenger boys in distant all-night stations and in half an hour doorbells are ringing in harlem or jersey city and the men who ought to know things know them and whistles are sounding on big pontoons that can lift two hundred tons and sleepy men are tumbling out of their bunks and great chains are clanking and tugboats are sputtering forth for the towing of sundry hoisting and pumping craft that go splashing along to the danger spot with all appliances aboard pneumatic hydraulic not to mention savory hot coffee served to the divers and the crew most divers are poor storytellers perhaps because the marvelous grows commonplace to them from overindulgence in it but the stories are there in their lives if only you can dig them out i asked bean if he often went down himself and found that he was still in active service after twenty-odd years of it which certainly had agreed with him he was just back from a sad errand in pennsylvania a boy had gone swimming in a slate quarry and been drowned they had dragged for him and fired cannon over the water but nothing had availed and so finally a diver was sent for from the city the diver being bean the quarry was a great chasm four or five hundred feet deep with eighty feet of water filling various galleries and rock shelves in one of which the poor lad had been caught and held the question was in which one well said bean coming abruptly to the end i went down and got him that was his way of telling the story he went down and got him there was nothing more to say nothing about the two days perilous search through every tunnel and recess of those rocky walls nothing about the three thousand excited people who crowded around the quarry's mouth awaiting the issue nor the scene when that pitiful burden was hauled up from the depths i asked bean if he had ever been in great danger while under the water nothing special he said and then added after thinking once i had my helmet twisted off what below he nodded how can a diver live with his helmet off he can't usually it was just luck they got me up in time they say my face was black as coal and he had no more to tell of this adventure with few exceptions divers take their career in exactly this phlegmatic matter-of-fact way i fancy a man of vivid imagination would break under the strain of such a life yet often divers will go into great details about some little incident as when bean described the hoisting of a certain boiler sunk outside of sandy hook it had been on a tugboat of such a name it was so many feet long and wide and other things about the tide and the steam derrick and what the captain said the point being that this boiler had acted as an enormous trap for the blackfish of which they had found some hundreds of big ones splashing about inside unable to escape 
So our talk ran on, and all the time I was thinking how I would like to see these things for myself, and it came to pass, as the subject kept its hold on me, that I did see them. Indeed, I spent a whole summer month, and found zest in it beyond ordinary summer pleasurings, in observing the practical operations of diving and wrecking as they go on in the waters about New York. I discovered other wrecking companies, notably one on West Street, and from the head man here learned many things. He took me out on a pier one day, where one of his crews was rescuing $30,000 worth of copper buried under the North River. Every few minutes, with a chunk-chunk of the engine and a rattle of chains, the dredge would bring up a fistful of mud, an iron fist holding a ton or so, and slap it down on the deck, where a strong hose stream would wash out little canvas bags of copper ore, each worth a ten-dollar bill in the market. This will show you, said the expert, what a diver has to contend with at the bottom of a river. He often sinks four or five feet in the mud, just as those bags sink, and sometimes the mud suction holds him down so hard that three men pulling on the lifeline can scarcely budge him. And when the mud lets go, the diver comes out of it like a cork from a bottle. You can feel him flop over, clean tuckered out with kicking and working his arms. They let him lie there a minute or two to rest, and then pull him up. Why, vessels will sink ten or twelve feet in the mud, so that the diver has to take a hose down and wash a tunnel out below the keel to get a lifting chain under. Wash a tunnel out? I inquired. That's what they do. You know how you can bore a hole in a sandbank, don't you, with a stream of water? Well, it's just the same with a mud bank down below, only you need more pressure. Sometimes we use a stream of compressed air. The diver steers the hose just as a fireman steers the fire hose, and once in a while gets knocked over by the force of it just as a fireman does. Tunneling mud banks under water with streams of water or streams of compressed air struck me as decidedly a novelty. I was to hear of stranger things ere long. My guide presently pointed out a splendidly built young man who was shoveling mud off the deck, not far from us. There, said he, is a case that illustrates the worst of this business. That fellow is made to be a diver. He's intelligent. He's not afraid. And he can stand having the suit on. He's been down two or three times and done easy jobs of patching. If he'd keep straight for a year or two, he could earn his ten dollars a day with the best of them but he won't keep straight. The poor fellow drinks. We can't depend on him. And here he is, shoveling mud for a dollar and a quarter a day, and no steady work at that. Ten dollars a day seemed a handsome wage, and I asked if divers generally earn so much. Good ones do, and a diver's day is only four hours long, or less, when they go to great depths and they draw a salary besides, and often receive handsome presents. You ought to see our chief diver, 
Bill Atkinson. He lives in a brownstone house. He paused a moment, and then added, But I guess they earn all they get. A few days later, I made Mr. Atkinson's acquaintance on board the steam pump Dunderberg, then busy raising a coal barge sunk off 14th Street in the East River. Atkinson was down doing carpenter work on Hole's stove in her, and I stood on deck beside the man tending him and watched the bubbles boil up from the diver's breathing and the signals on a rubber hose and a rope. It was less air or more air by jerks on the hose. It was rags for a leak or a heavier hammer or a piece of batten so and so long with nails ready driven at the corners. All were indicated by poles on the lifeline or the startling appearance of hands or fingers, Atkinson's, that would now and then reach above the water and move impatiently. The wreck was only five or six feet under, and the diver's helmet showed like the back of a big turtle whenever he stood up straight on the sunken deck. Suddenly there is a scurry of barefoot youths along the pier timbers. The diver is coming up. Now he lifts himself slowly under the crushing weight, one short step at a time up the ladder. No man at all is this, but a dripping three-eyed monster of rubber and brass, infinitely fascinating to wharf loungers. The tender twists off the face glass, and Atkinson says something with a snap in it, and explains what he is trying to do at the forward hatch. Then he leans over the rail on his stomach and rests. Then he goes down again. He's the best-natured man I know, Bill is remarked Captain Taylor, commander of the Dunderberg. But all men get irritable under water. Why, I've had men who wouldn't swear for the world, up in the air, tell me they rip out cuss words, something terrible, down on the bottom. Just seems like they can't help it. I noticed that the tender did not join in our talk, but stood with hands on his lines and eyes on the water, absorbed in his responsibility he looked like an angler about to land a big fish neither did the men at the air pump talk this feeding breath to a diver is serious business how long would he live do you think i asked if the pump should stop maybe a minute maybe two said captain taylor i know a norwegian who is down in fifty feet of water when the hose busted, it busted on deck, where the tender heard it, and he started to lift right away. It couldn't have been over a minute before they had him up, but he was so near dead the doctors worked three hours on him before he came around. That'll give you an idea of how far gone he was. The captain told of other desperate chances faced by divers in his experience, of a hose and a lifeline fouled in a wreck, of an escape valve frozen shut in winter time by the diver's congealed breath, of a helmet smashed through by a load of pig iron falling from its sling, of a diver dragged off a wreck by a drifting pontoon, 
such a record of thrilling escapes and tragedies as any wrecking master could run over one realized why insurance companies refused to take risks on divers lives and why the divers pay is large before long atkinson came up again and announced that everything was ready holes stopped and suction length in place two men helped undress him while the other set the big eight-inch pipe to pumping out the wreck and soon it was spurting a thick stream over her side like a fire tower presently the dinner bell rang from a tiny cabin below and i had the honor of breaking bread with the crew of the dunderberg and two of the company's stanchest drivers atkinson and timmins both small thin men with wrinkled faces both the heroes of many adventures here was indeed a chance to find out things one of my first questions turned upon the effect of diving on a man's hearing was it true as i had read that divers often have one or both of their eardrums ruptured by the water pressure both men thought not most divers of their acquaintance had good hearing diving often kills a man straight out said timmermans but aside from that i don't think it injures his health ain't that right bill atkinson nodded he had observed that divers almost never take cold or have trouble with their lungs although they are constantly exposed to all weathers and often live and sleep in wet clothes for days and nights as a young man he himself had been a bookkeeper in delicate health people thought he had consumption so he gave up bookkeeping and by accident became a diver he had never had a sick day since and he had worn the suit now for twenty-nine years about a man's ears said he there's no doubt you get a pressure in em when you go down and the pressure gets harder and harder the deeper you go that is until your ears crack crack i said well that's what we call it but i don't suppose anything really cracks after you get down say thirty feet your ears hurt a good deal especially if by chance you have a little cold and you keep opening your mouth and swallowing to make the crack come and the first thing you know you hear a sound inside your head like striking a match that's the crack and then you can go on down as far as you please and you won't feel any more pain in your ears until you're coming up again then you get a reverse crack they say it's the air working in and out of your head i don't know what it is but i know some men's ears won't crack and those men can't never make divers how deep can a diver go down i inquired the company smiled at this and turned to atkinson who smiled back and then referred modestly to one of the deepest dives on record one hundred and fifty feet made by himself some years before up the hudson he had a pressure of six atmospheres on him at that depth and could stay down only twenty minutes i'll tell you about that some other day said he it's pretty near time now for me to be sweeping up this coal 
then answering my look of surprise at the word sweeping he explained how they lessen the weight of a sunken barge by first pumping out the water in her and then pumping out the coal the same suction pipe does both and will discharge thirty-five or forty tons of coal an hour on a chute which holds the coal while the water streams through during this operation the diver is down in the barge moving the suction end back and forth up and down the sweeping in question until no more coal is left for its hungry mouth we pump grain out of wrecks in the same way said atkinson tons and tons of it and they dry it in ovens and sell it a man must look sharp though and not get himself caught we had a diver he was new at the business who got his knee against the suction pipe one day while he was pumping coal and it held him as if he was nailed there he was so scared he tore himself loose but he had to rip a piece out of his suit to do it he stayed down though just the same what with a hole in his suit that doesn't matter as long as it's only in the leg you see the air in the helmet presses down hard enough to keep the water below a man's neck but he mustn't bend over so as to let his helmet get lower than the hole i should say not put in timmermans why what would happen if he did he'd be killed quicker than you can wink the air from the helmet would rush out at the hole and he'd be crushed by the weight of the water i don't know whether mr atkinson realized the full truth of his words but i found on consulting the authorities that a diver's body at thirty-two feet is subjected to a pressure of water amounting to forty tons at sixty-four feet to eighty tons at ninety-six feet to one hundred and twenty tons etc and it is only the great counter-pressure in the helmet of air from the air pump that enables the diver to endure this otherwise deadly weight it follows that the deeper a diver goes the harder work it is for the air pump men to drive air down to him and at great depths as many as four men are sometimes needed at the pump to conquer the water resistance and keep open the escape valve for air breathed out at the helmet top here ended this day's talk for the coal would wait no longer atkinson must go down again to his sweeping but there were other days for me aboard the dunderberg other glimpses into these brave simple lives think what these fellows do here is a huge helpless vessel at the bottom of a bay with the tide tearing her to pieces and down into the depths comes a queer little man as big as one of her anchor points and stands beside her in the mud and feels her over and decides how he will save her and then does it does it all alone and what he does is never the same as anything he has done before for each wreck is a new problem each job of submarine patching has its own difficulties and dangers oh bored folk idle folk go to the wreckers say i 
if you want a new sensation watch the big pontoons put forth their strength watch the divers and if you can set the crew of the dunderberg to telling stories end of section five